All right, brothers and sisters, let's pull together. We're going to try to get started. I know I'm just a couple of minutes early, but I'm going to reward you for your earliness and try to steal as much time as I possibly can because heaven knows I'm going to need it. Heaven knows I'm going to need it. Oh, thank you for, thank you for being here. Many of you um, are aware of the fact that Cornerstone began maybe a year or two ago uh, doing um, what, we're, what we call Cornerstone Forums, um, aiming to do them at, um, as often as, as we can, um, maximally once a quarter, uh, maybe minimally once every, every couple of quarters, to address a variety of different issues. Um, theologically, culturally, socially, spiritually, that are hot-button issues or thorny, complicated issues like the one we're looking at today, uh, theologically. And the goal of this is because we, we're, we're trying to find platforms, um, means by which to address certain things that's probably not um, a, a maybe a long-term Sunday school class, um, and, and, and maybe not a, a sermonic series or, or something along those lines, but needs to be addressed for the body of Christ, needs to be spoken to. And, and so what we started doing when we started the series in the book of Genesis was introducing, and I'm on track to spend, you know, 10 years in Genesis with you. Um, <laughs> Uh, when we started Genesis, however long ago that was, we committed to at certain points in the series pause because behind the narrative of Genesis, there's a number of complicated issues. And um, this particular issue of baptism and infant baptism in particular was behind the teaching that was in Genesis 17 with the covenant of circumcision in the book of Genesis. So I'm not just picking these subjects kind of willy-nilly right now, um, even though I've got a whole list of them uh, for us to address. Um, these are actually striving to, these particular forums are striving to coincide or, or parallel or saddle up along next to some of the passages in the book of Genesis that speak to either cultural, relational, social um, issues of our day and time. So some of you will remember, we, uh, our very first uh, Cornerstone Forum was a, a forum on uh, creation days and the views of creation days. And we spent a whole forum on that. And then I got to visit a number of your home fellowship groups and chase that rabbit for a long time uh, together, which was, a, which was a joy. And I love the dialogue that comes out of that. And that's what I hope will happen today. Uh, in the work that we'll strive to do. Then we addressed, after Genesis chapter 2, moving into Genesis chapter 3, issues related to gender, male-female roles, and sexuality. Um, I don't know if you noticed, that's kind of an issue uh, today uh, in our culture, and I think we need to be extremely clear about what it is that we believe the Bible teaches on that matter. So we had written a paper as elders, which we made available uh, to you at that forum, and then um, in addition, talked through and dialogued through some of the com complex issues associated with uh, gender, role, and sexuality with regards to male and female. So that was our, our second one together. So you can see some of those are arising directly out of of um, issues in the, in the text of Scripture. Then our third one was to address covenant theology. <laughs> we did that when we got to Genesis chapter 9 with the story of Noah leading up to Genesis chapter 12. And uh, we actually had one of our dear brothers from Westminster Theological Seminary with us, and I did a little Q&A uh, with him on covenant theology to discuss the importance of covenant as a unifying theme to make sense the relationship and connection between the Old and New Testament in the unfolding story of redemption. So we focused on that in, in terms of our third Cornerstone Forum. So this is our fourth forum. The, the goal was to do it sometime around Genesis 17. Well, guess what? We're in Genesis 26. I'm not really sure what happened. I don't remember why, but we had a scheduling thing that did not allow that to be able to happen. And the reason that we were going to do it around Genesis 17 is because Genesis 12, 15, and 17, but specifically 
17, where you see the covenant uh, ratified or confirmed and signed and sealed with the um, what would be called the rite, the initiation rite of circumcision, has a direct parallel to what we're going to talk about today in infant baptism. There, there's, there's a line in the scripture from what's going on in Genesis 17 to the New Testament with regards to what the practice of circumcision was in the Old Testament to what the practice of infant baptism becomes in the New Testament and in the history and the doctrine of the church uh, going forward. Um, so, so we didn't get around to it for that, but and you'll see me in this forum harken back a lot to the Abrahamic covenant because the Abrahamic covenant is the foundation for our view as Presbyterians, this idea, this notion, this practice of infant baptism, okay? Don't want to get ahead of myself because we're going to talk about a lot of those, those things together. And so what I want to do, if, how many of you have a handout? Did the handout kind of make it around? Okay, you've got, if you don't have one, maybe there's some somewhere, Brent. Do you know if there's, okay, there's a few up here um, as well. So and I don't know if there's any in the back, but if someone comes in late, it might be nice to have a few back there to be able to grasp. I hope I made enough copies. Anybody not get a copy of one? Um, good. Why don't I pray for us and then let's jump in together. And the goal together today is to try to get through as much as possible the, the variety of angles that the Bible gives us in the understanding and the practice of infant baptism from Old Testament to New Testament and to seek to build, okay, seek to build a persuasive case for believing in infant baptism and for practicing in infant baptism. And so I hope that it will be um, along those lines that, that we'll focus today. I don't believe that we'll have a tremendous amount of time for questions at the end. Um, that means that I'm going to encourage you to reach out to me or to reach out to the church office with questions. If enough of you have questions, I'd love to sit down and just answer your questions. So, and rather than to do that individually by email, because I've received a number of emails just in preparation for today from a number of you on a lot of matters, love to, I love to do that. So that's like kid in a candy store for me. So, um, so I would love to do that. It might even be more impactful to be able to do that together in community. So we'll see how you respond uh, kind of coming out of our time together today and, um, and try to help us at least understand why Presbyterians do this crazy thing called infant baptism. All right, so let me pray. Father in heaven, we know that your word is truth and it is your joy and delight to sanctify us in the truth. That was your prayer in John chapter 4. Uh, Lord, we only want to believe what's true. We only want to believe what's true. And whatever is true, we want to believe it and obey it to the fullness of our heart. And so, Lord, I would simply ask you today to work with or even against me to communicate what is only true from your word and to have your people's conscience held captive only by that which is true. So I pray on the front end, Lord, that you would so tailor the hearing, not just the speaking, but the hearing of what happens in this room, that those things which are true would be so amazingly unforgettable that they would stick deep and believable into the hearts of your people. And there would be a longing to practice and to believe that which is true from the scripture. And anything that I would speak that's out of accord with your word, even if I don't know if it's out of accord with your word, and I wholeheartedly believe it and am wrong. Lord, if that is true with regards to your time, I just ask you to make the ears of your people deaf to it so that they would follow only that which is true and that you would enlighten my own heart and mind to my own weakness and blindness in the midst of doing so so that my thought and heart would be held totally captive unto you. Lord, I pray that with earnestness, knowing that you love a petition like that, and you are pleased to answer it with regards to the power of your Holy Spirit. So come and do even more than I know to think and pray for the purposes of your glory. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you will, just look at your handout. I'm going to do my best to stick closely uh, to the handout as we, as we go along. And uh, I want to recognize uh, as we enter into this subject together that in this room there are a variety 
of thoughts and opinions and beliefs with regards to baptism. One of the beautiful things of actually being the pastor of this local congregation is the fact that we don't all believe alike. Um, believe it or not, I, I enjoy that work and the work of being able to be unified even among differences within the body, especially along what I'm calling here critically important secondary matters with regards to faith. Now I'll get around to what I mean by the critically important and secondary and why I've grouped those together in this dialogue uh, on baptism. Um, I, I think this is important because um, having um, a tear, a little bit of a tear with regards to doctrines that are essential and doctrines that are critical and then doctrines that are tertiary <laughs> I think having some silos or some categories by which to put beliefs and doctrines is important about the nature of the way in which we dialogue. For instance, if we're fighting mad over tertiary issues, we're lacking some wisdom because we need to have a lot of charity over those issues. But we need to be stalwarts and rock solid on the things that are essential. And we don't need to even be able to budge an inch. And on critical secondary matters, we need to be deeply thoughtful and realize that these are important and formative and our conscience needs to be held to the word of God, even when we know dear brothers and sisters aren't always going to agree with us. That's where I think we are, okay, in the dialogue. And I actually believe that's where our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, would situate this dialogue. Why do I say that? The reason is that the PCA specifically and Presbyterians generally, not all branches of Presbyterianism, because it's hard to speak generally about all branches of Presbyterianism. They're so widely divergent specifically today. Um, but, but generally speaking, in most conservative Presbyterian denominations, there is a fairly wide net with regards to welcome into the body of Christ. Uh, meaning to be an evangelical believer who knows they're a, a sinner, who trusts in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, who is committed to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, is willing to submit to the worship and the work of the church and to the governance and the discipline of a local body. That is what it requires for you to be a member of the local church. Notice, not a word about infant baptism. There's not a word of infant baptism in there. Why is that? Because it's not actually what would be described as an essential truth with regards to salvation. With a central truth with regards to salvation. Meaning that it's not required that you're baptized in order to be saved. There will be, believe it or not. I know this for a matter of fact. There will be unbaptized believers in heaven. You know that. Because you believe that the thief on the cross was a believer. I don't recall him being baptized, do y'all? He didn't have time. I'm going to guess there's other stories like that over the course of history. Now, did he need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for his salvation? He did. And that's the only way that Jesus could have assured him of the fact that he would be together with him in heaven. Okay, So when we're talking about essential things, we're talking about things which are required unto salvation. But notice the language that I've also added in with regards to not just secondary. Okay, So it's not essential in the requirements there. But it's, it's critically important. It's a critically important matter. Why is it a critically important matter? Well, look at the words that they have for you on the page. We mean that it's critically important that baptism is inextricably tied to the truths of salvation, meaning it's really closely linked with the essential truths of salvation. It is a primary doctrine in Christian discipleship, Matthew chapter 28. It's how we actually make disciples it's directly tied to the work of baptism. And I think this is pretty big. It's commanded by Jesus Christ. Um, pretty critical. All right? That makes it really important. A grave, a, a significant, a weighty matter, which means we should be thoughtfully engaged and have strong conviction with regards to conscience regarding the Bible's teaching and practice faithfully what it is that we believe the Bible teaches on this matter. Um, and I've given you some references there. I won't be going through all of these scriptures as we go through. I will be digging into some specifically. Um, but I've, I've left those to you um, for your um, study post our time together. So you can see that baptism is closely tied 
Um, two, the doctrines of salvation, Christian discipleship, and is a commandment of Christ. Let me, let me just maybe even say it this way. The Bible never envisions a Christian um, who remains unbaptized as normative. Never envisions it. It doesn't really know of a Christian that would name the name of Christ and wouldn't be baptized. Doesn't, doesn't put that as a category, like there's a baptism track and a non-baptism track for Christians. D- doesn't give you that option. So it's never considered not normative. So I say that specifically because we live in a day and time that delays baptism a lot of times. You know, I profess faith in Christ, I don't have to be saved to be baptized. That's a precarious place to be because it's tied closely to the truths of salvation. It's a central aspect of Christian discipleship and it's commanded by Jesus Christ. We should take that very seriously. Okay, so this, this division between I can profess but not be baptized is something the Bible never envisions. And I think we should, we should recognize that on the front end as we consider its critical importance in terms of its secondary uh, matter in the, in the scope of theology. Now, I, I think this is important to note just, just so that you can, uh, I can elicit a, a decent amount of compassion for you as the one who's giving, uh, from you as the one who's giving this presentation. Um, point number two is I've described what I'm doing today as an uphill battle. And it is an uphill battle, I think, with regards to our cultural um, context, uh, theologically and religiously. Now, not for many of you here in this room. But, but talking about infant baptism is in some ways talking about a foreign entity in, in sort of the religious landscape of 21st century North America. I called ourselves Presbyterian exiles in a Baptist-dominated world. It's really sort of what it, what it feels like um, in, in many ways. And, and I think the, the reason that, that we can say it that way is acknowledging that the largest um, a denomination in, in North America today is the Southern Baptist Convention, and probably the fastest growing movements with regards to uh, denominations today is among our charismatic believer Baptist trending um, um, groups and, and um, denominations. Um, and so, so it's, you're, to be a Presbyterian who believes in infant baptism is to embrace a minority status. Uh, among the religious landscape in North America. Now, religiously and historically, that is an unusual place for us to inhabit. For it wouldn't be until about the 16th century where there was any question with regards to the practice of infant baptism from at least the 2nd century, I would argue, before. So you're looking at, you know, uh, you know, 1,500 years at best of church history where infant baptism was the norm, which would mean anyone who would suggest otherwise would be an exile in a, in a largely infant baptism world. So the, the tide has changed. Now, that actually deserves an entire lecture that I'm not going to give you to help you even understand why that happened. So you're welcome. I'm not going to give that to you. Um, I mean, love to talk about it, but there's some great cultural realities, um, great as in significant uh, cultural realities to appreciate for why it's moved that direction um, over the last um, four to five hundred years. Um, and, but one of the things I think that is important is acknowledging the one thing I want to say about it is that there's been a fundamental shift, especially in the last 200 to 150 years, in how we actually read the Bible that makes infant baptism almost bewildering to the, to the typical 21st century reader of the Scriptures uh, today. And I think that deserves a note uh, in the midst of it. You'll notice the second point under an uphill battle I put, Bible-believing Christians struggle to see the biblical warrant for infant baptism. Listen, I was raised as a Baptist. I was baptized when I was six years old. Um, I, you know, faithful, believing family um, and became, I am a transplant into the Presbyterian world and that happened around 22 or 23 years old when I became convinced after a long and arduous battle over this particular doctrine, became convinced that this is what the Bible teaches with regards to baptism, and then realized, oh wait, I'm not going to get to worship with the rest of my family the rest of my life, or serve the community that served me so well, which actually, in a very interesting way, I kind of limped into Presbyterianism, and was like, oh shucks, I'm not going to be with the people who I really know and love, and have gotten to know an entirely new community based upon my conscience being held to the Word of God on this particular truth, and my 
confidence just continues to increase with, re with regards to this practice and belief as I continue to go deeper uh, into the study of it. What I'm alluding to is to why Bible-believing Christians who love the Bible and who read the Bible and who are looking to even be convinced for infant baptism in the Bible and can't be, um, I think part of the big reason for why that's the case is number three, hermeneutics. We've got to say something about this. Hermeneutics is simply a big, you know, $3 word that means how you read or interpret the Bible, how you understand or read or interpret the Bible. I'm calling it the big subject behind the big subject of baptism. Um, one of the things I've realized over the years of speaking about infant baptism is the reason Presbyterians and Baptists and others tend to talk past each other in the dialogue is we actually look at the same text and see something entirely different based upon the grid that we bring to the text. It's a hermeneutical dialogue, at least to appreciate and at least understand where each other is coming, coming from. Under point one under section three, I've said this, a Presbyterian view of baptism depends on a Presbyterian view of Scripture. It actually depends on it. It rests on it. There's, there's no, in my, in my own opinion, you can take me to task to this later, in my own opinion, I don't think you can get to a strong, plausible doctrine of infant baptism if you don't have a strong doctrine of Presbyterian view of Scripture. They're tied. They're linked. One is, there's a, there's a cart and there's a horse in this one. Okay, And you got to get the horse in order to get the cart. And if we're talking about the cart and we don't have the horse, it's not going to make sense. We're going to miss each other. We're going to pass like ships in the night uh, with regards to the subject. So how did, how, what am I talking about? What's the differences there? Well, let me just make this one comment on hermeneutics before we jump in. All of this by way of introduction. <sighs> right. Uh, point two. A tale of two testaments, okay? I think this is very big, the rise of dispensationalism. Now, depending on how far we get in this dialogue, this I think is still helpful to you. Um, the rise of dispensationalism is really, really critical for the understanding of a Baptist-dominated view of, of believers' baptism in our own day, but also what became a wedge that was placed in the psyche, in the theological psyche of believers in the last couple of hundred years, a wedge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I don't know if you grew up in a church where it was sort of like the Old Testament was for, you know, Israel, <laughs> and we can learn some great moral lessons from the Old Testament, but really it's just weird and we try not to read it very much. And we're going to look, we're New Testament believers, and we're going to focus on the New Testament. Now, I guarantee you, if you have that view of Scripture, you will be a believer's Baptist. Because your view of Scripture teaches you that I look to the New Testament for how to understand the signs and the symbols of the New Testament. I don't look to the whole of the Bible in order to understand the nature and the administration of those sacraments. It's built in to the notion. Dispensationalism, classically, if you don't know what it is, are any of you familiar with the Schofield Study Bible? Any of you grow up with the Schofield Study Bible? Okay, it's okay to admit it. I'm not gonna, right? It's okay. Got one on my shelf. It's okay. Charles Ryrie, anybody um, familiar with this Study Bible? Tim LaHaye, we getting somewhere? Left Behind series? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Right? Starting to, starting to get somewhere. Dispensational. Okay, dispensational theology. Dispensational theology taught that the Old Testament had to do with Israel. And the prophecies of the Old, of the Old Testament are to be filled only by ethnic Israel. Only by ethnic Israel. So Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant. It's all about Israel. And one day... God's going to get to fulfill those covenants after this period known as the church age, which the classic dispensationalists saw as a parenthesis. They actually see the era of which we're in. This is classic dispensational. It's changed over the years a little bit. They see this era as almost practically unforeseen in the Old Testament. It's kind of unforeseen. It's a parenthesis where God is bringing in the Gentiles and then later he's going to revisit the promises of the Old Testament after we get raptured, after we get raptured, great tribulation comes, Israel will begin to be embraced, and then the end of time will come. 
You heard that narrative before? I'm not here to solve your end time issues today. Um, but, but, but that is connected deeply to the notion of, of dispensationalism. Part of what's important about that is it's a tale of two testaments. The Old Testament is for Israel. The New Testament is for the Gentiles, which means essentially... Dispensationalism teaches there are two peoples of God, two paths of God, two testaments for two different peoples of God. That's essentially how the scripture was treated. And if you grew up in a kind of, you know, we read David's story to become a man after God's own heart like David, or we dare to be a Daniel, but there's nothing really else that we can learn about those stories, then you probably grew up in the air of dispensationalism. And it's hopefully why, as you maybe pick up here at Cornerstone, we think that the Old Testament has more to say than that. Um, that it actually is speaking of the whole of the Bible and it's connecting to the very central message of the gospel. Each and every passage is and each and every story is that the Bible is, as I put here, one book with one people bound together in a covenant fulfilled by Jesus Christ. It's just a summary of a Presbyterian view of Scripture. So with that in place, okay, now that's all assumption. That's all kind of groundwork. But we really have to lay that groundwork because I'm going to start talking about the Old Testament. You're going to be like, that's not baptism. That's not baptism. And, and, and that's that old click coming in, okay, <laughs> of saying, okay, it's, it's not just baptism. It's baptism is a part of a big story, it's part of a big work. It's part of, it's part of other signs. It's part of other work that God has done. We've got to see it in relationship to the unfolding of, of, that, whole, of that whole story. So this starts us into point four with the Old Testament foundation for baptism, covenant uh, theology. Uh, covenant theology. Now, covenant theology we've talked about already, and my, my goal here is not to give you another crash course in covenant theology, but it is to acknowledge that beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where we have that what is called the proto-evangelion, or the very first telling of the gospel, where God says to Adam and, and to Eve, there is going to be two seeds... There's the seed of the serpent, and there's the seed of the woman, and these two seeds are going to clash throughout history, and there will come a time in which the seed of the serpent's going to crush the heel of the seed of the woman, and the seed of the woman's going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And the imagery there, you'll remember this from our study in Genesis, the imagery there is um, one is going to be a debilitating blow, a heel blow, which is what a snake does. It bites you on your foot. Okay, If you can just see the imagery of how the text is working, it's meaning for you to visualize it. It's going to crush, going to crush the heel, but the, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head. What happens when the head gets crushed? It's a mortal wound. Okay, it's, it's a death blow. So one is going to be victorious. We're told that in Genesis 3. Okay, We're told there's going, this, is, this is in some ways redemptive history. There's all of redemptive history in one verse. That's, I mean, everything that the scripture is going to be about is, is, is embedded. Um, we might say that verse is pregnant with the whole of the Bible. It's pregnant with the whole of the Bible. The whole story of the Bible is flowing in and through Genesis 3.15. So when you begin, as I've tried to painstakingly, right, take you through Genesis, we get to, each, we get to these various stories and you hear me say stuff about seeds, Right? Right, and, and we could do that in every book. Okay, we can go all the way through the Bible and do that. It's really important categories help you understand when the Bible doesn't make sense what it's trying to do because it's given you, in a sense, an interpretive key. It's how, it's, the Bible's not left you with um, a mystery or a fabrication or creativeness that you need to come up with to figure out how to understand the Bible. It's embedded how to understand itself within itself. And it's looking for that, it's tracing for that, and it's exploring that is a big part of what we're called to do in the discipline of hermeneutics. Well, covenant is what, we, what I described in the Presbyterian view of Scripture as the weaving piece or the seams of, of actually drawing together this one book and this one people together. It's the seams. It's the promises of God. And we know that it's unfolded 
throughout the scriptures, right? With Noah, we have a covenant that's made with creation that God's not going to destroy the world again by, by way of a flood. And he preserves and since Noah becomes a new Adam for a new humanity. And then a redemptive covenant comes out of the covenant of Noah with Abraham. And then Abraham gives way to the law covenant. Not gives way as in ceases to be, but unfolds further. So it's not like a dispensation where it stops and a new something picks up. It's enveloped. It's taken within. It's like a wave. Um, Moses comes along and he's the lawgiver. And we're learning that there's grace and there's, there's law uh, in this unfolding of God's covenant promises. And then we see uh, later there's going to be uh, a David, a Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. And there's going to be a kingship that's going to go along with that. And then Jeremiah and Ezekiel speak of a new covenant, an even greater figure who's going to come. And of course, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. These covenants are, are ever expanding and widening throughout the scriptures. They're getting bigger. They're telling us more with each unfolding as the scripture continues to grow. Now that understanding of covenant is critical to getting to the subject of baptism. That's where I want to plop down now in the Abrahamic covenant specifically. Okay, It's the first, in, in, in one way, depending on how you understand the Noahic covenant, it's certainly the, the clearest and the deepest and first, most pronounced redemptive promises given to us in the scripture come through the covenant of Abraham. It gives shape to each of the covenants in a unique way and shows up all the time in the New Testament. Right? How would you understand the book of Romans or the book of Galatians uh, without an understanding of the Abrahamic covenant? Um, well, one of the things that you see in the Abrahamic covenant is you see promises you see the exercise of faith alone as the means by which one is saved. And you see a sign that attends the covenant. So you have this rhythm in each of the covenants where there is a promise and a stipulation that's given in the covenant, meaning there's something God's going to give and there's something that you're called to do. There's this you know, kind of promise and obedience, uh, faith and obedience piece that's always there in the covenant. Um, there's you are required to believe it you're, required, you're called um, to trust in the promises of the Lord and obey them. And then God gives an attending sign to confirm that he will uphold his end of the bargain. So when we look at the covenants, you see each of those things. I won't take time to do it, but every one of the covenants has promises and stipulations. It has an exercise of faith that's required on the people in whom it's given to. And a sign is given to them to confirm and assure that God will hold true to his promises. You'll see that in each one of the covenants. The reason that it's important that we sit down in the Abrahamic covenant is this is where we see baptism so deeply and indelibly connected from Old Testament to New Testament in its unfolding. It's rooted right here. And specifically, it's rooted in that sign of circumcision in Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 uh, through 18. Genesis 17, verses 9 uh, through 18. Uh, now, in that, uh, that covenant that's given um, uh, to Abraham, you'll remember in Genesis 12, he's, the structure of the covenant is given. I will bless you. I will give you offspring. You will become a great nation. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's reiterated again in the ceremony in Genesis 15, in the dividing of the animals, in the smoking pot and the flaming torch that passes through the animals. And then you remember that Abraham was very faithful. No, he wasn't. Genesis 16, what happens? Hagar happens. <laughs> so this is Abraham going... Wow, that's awesome, Lord, all you're going to do. Well, maybe it's not with Sarah. And, and he and Sarah concoct this, this uh, terrible plan to produce the seed through Hagar. Um, it's the product of Abraham's disbelief, okay, is Ishmael. Notice what happens then in Genesis chapter 17 with the covenant of circumcision. Could it be possible that Abraham could need some assurance it's possible. He's waited more than four decades for that promise. He gave up and decided to produce an heir of faithlessness that will not be the heir of faith. God returns to him in Genesis 17 and said, you're going to need more persuading. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to brand my promise into your flesh. 
so that you won't forget it. It's, it's literally the visual that's given to us. And if you look at the covenant sign of circumcision, well, let me just jump down to the unpacking of it for just a minute. You'll see in terms of its meaning. Look at the meaning of the covenant sign, and then we'll jump back up to the, to the one. Notice the rhythm of the sign. It's a removal of flesh. It's a removal of the foreskin, flesh. It's utilized there. It's an experience of bloodshed, which is necessary for the forgiveness of sins in order for a godly seed to be produced through Abraham. That's the sign. That's the meaningfulness of the sign. It's, it's, it's a very earthy image. It's meant to say, that's, what's Paul's favorite word for sin? Flesh. Our flesh. You gotta, your flesh has got to be removed. Your sin's got to be removed. You're, 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 you've got to be cleansed in, in a very real sense, um, in the very manner and way in which you committed faithful, faithlessness. In the, in the very manner of it. I'm removing flesh and there needs to be bloodshed for your sin in order for a godly seed to produce. Now when we look to the New Testament, this is why Paul says that circumcision is fulfilled in the cross. That the cross is a circumcision. What? <laughs> what? What's that? <laughs> okay, it's a, it's, it removes our sinful flesh. It's a shedding of blood in order for a godly seed to be. That's what the cross does. That's the production of what the cross affects and accomplishes. And so Paul it mixes, as it were, a bit of a metaphors. This is why it can sometimes be complicated to read. It's okay if you get lost. In the Apostle Paul, just take heart. Peter in 1 Peter says, sometimes I read Paul and there's some really strange things. I'm not sure I understand them. Like Peter says that, so that's okay. You get a little lost too. Peter's getting lost. Um, it takes some meditation uh, on that. But in Colossians chapter 2, which we'll look at in a minute, he actually refers to the circumcision of Christ. And he's not talking about the physical circumcision of Christ. Now, we have reason to believe Christ was circumcised, right? Because of the biblical narrative. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the meaningfulness of circumcision. Not the act. We're talking about its, its intent, its spiritual reality. Now, if you'll jump up, back up to section 4, and notice that the sons of Abraham, I've got just a note there because I want you to think along spiritual lines. And I want you to ask the question with me, who are the sons of Abraham? Who are the sons of Abraham? Okay, the sons of Abraham, we learn in the New Testament, are not those, and it was true in the Old Testament as well, and we could turn to many places, whether it's Deuteronomy 10 or Jeremiah 4 or many other places that tell us that circumcision was not a matter of the flesh. It was a matter of the heart, right? Why would Moses say in Deuteronomy chapter 10, don't circumcise your foreskins circumcise your heart. That's what he tells them in Deuteronomy 10. Now, why would he say that? He means to say that what the sign points to has to be believed and trusted in. The meaningfulness of that sign has to become an internal reality. The external act of the sign and the picture of the sign is not enough to do the thing. In the same way that your baptism doesn't save you, but water applied to you in and of itself is not salvation. But why the Puritans would say, grow up into the sign. Meaning to say, let what the sign says become true of you. Become, grow into the sign. Grow into the sign. That was exactly the experience of every male Israelite in all of the Old Testament who was circumcised. They were growing into the image that had been placed upon them. They were growing into the sign because the sign was a sign of the promise. It was something that God himself was saying to the people. And it wasn't how we often think about it. We think about our baptism as something primarily that we're saying to God. I'm saying I'm committed to God. That's really not what baptism is about. It's not about you saying we're committed to God. You know what baptism is? It's God saying he's committed to you. Don't take his sign and make it yours. <laughs> it's his sign. Let, let him say what he wants to say with it. 
and let his word speak. So that's one of the, that's one of the mind shifts you kind of have to do a little bit. You know, that was the case with circumcision, right? A six-day-year-old boy in Israelite was not professing faith in Yahweh. There was no verbal acclamation to his commitment to Yahweh. Is that Yahweh was reaching out to him long before he could ever reach out to Yahweh. God in his graciousness was saying what was true and is true for your parents will be true for you and throughout all generations to anyone who will call upon me. Grow up into the promises that I'm branding upon you, the mark that I'm placing upon you. Grow into the reality of it. This is why the distinction between who is really a son of Abraham, are you a son of Abraham by blood, by heritage, by, by, by lineage, by phys- physical succession, or are you a son of Abraham by faith, by trusting in the promises? And here's what we actually read in Galatians 3. Let me read these two passages to you, Galatians 3 and Romans 2. Galatians 3, 8, 9 says this, Know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, those who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and who see Christ as the fulfillment of the promises of Abraham, you're the real son of Abraham, those who have trusted in Christ. And the scripture foreseeing, notice the language, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. He preached the gospel. Abraham heard the gospel? I thought the gospel was Jesus Christ dying on the cross for his sins. He heard the gospel. How did he hear it? In the covenant promises. In the sign of circumcision. As he trusted in those promises, as he looked to the sign, he looked through them into the promise of the Savior who was to come. And he heard the gospel beforehand. He heard the gospel beforehand, saying, In you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Listen to this in Romans 2, 28 through 29. He's real clear here. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. What does that mean? No one is a Jew just because they were born Jewish and got circumcised. That's That's not a Jew. Now it is a Jew, but not in the way that Paul's speaking about it, spiritually. Nor is circumcision outward or physical. You sure, Paul? I'm pretty sure. Best I know, it's outward and physical. No, you're not hearing me. You're not hearing me. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. Verse 29, Romans 2. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. See see the distinction Paul's making. All over, this is just a sampling, all over the New Testament, we are directly connected to the promises of Abraham. We are sons and daughters of Abraham. That's why I put on your handout, Father Abraham and many sons, and many sons. You know this song. You grew up singing it. And you're like, okay, I'll believe that then. Um, so we really believe that, and that's going to be important as, as we go along. Now, if you'll look down, section five, moving quickly. What does the covenant sign do? What's its important? What is it trying to do? It's trying to mark those who are recipients of his promise. It's an outward sign that marks off, or we might call a boundary marker, between God's people and the rest of the world. It's a distinguishing marker. To be a Christian is to be distinguished in the world, from the world. We're the called out ones. That was true in the Old Testament with regards to Israel. But notice the second thing. It's to signify his pledge to provide salvation for the offspring of Abraham. It's to signify or to sign his pledge for salvation for the offspring of Israel. Now, if you'll look down to the bottom, the extent of the covenant sign, the little conclusion here based on Genesis 17, because the covenant promise given to Abraham extends to his offspring, the covenant promise extends to Abraham's offspring, right? It's to you and to your children after you. It's to you and to your children after you. Because the covenant promise is given to Abraham, extends to his offspring, the sign of the covenant is to be given to Abraham and his offspring. That's exactly what comes out of Genesis 17, verses 12 and 13. And this is why we see um, Abraham's sons become circumcised. 
Now, lest you have any concerns whether baptism saves you or circumcision saves you, let me just remind you who was the first person circumcised. Ishmael. Was he a believer? Not according to the text of Scripture. Baptism doesn't save you. Circumcision didn't save you. Not, you're not a believer outwardly, physically, but, but ultimately salvation comes by faith alone. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, his promises, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now let me ask you, in Genesis 15, was Abraham circumcised? No. We have quite a few years before he'll be circumcised. So we know that salvation is not based upon the sign. So what is the sign? What, what is its purpose? Let's turn over on the back and look at point seven. Look at point seven. I'll make this, this connection and then try to read through the last. And if you'll just note Acts 2. Acts 2, at the preaching of Pentecost, if you'll read it, we won't spend time on it, echoes the exact language of the Abrahamic covenant. It's borrowing the language of the Abrahamic covenant. As, he, as Peter preaches and the Spirit comes down and people are converted, the promises of Abraham are rehearsed. But look at section 7, relationship of circumcision to baptism. Baptism replaces circumcision in order to reflect the fulfillment of the covenant promises of Jesus Christ. Where do I get that? No longer is a bloody sign. Circumcision is a bloody sign. No longer is a bloody sign needed since Christ's blood has been once for all shed in order for the removal of sins. Now I'm citing for you there 1 Peter 1 and Hebrews chapter 10. There's no longer a need. You notice in our worship services, nobody gets cut. No, no, no animal gets cut. Like That would have been normal worship in the Old Testament. You know, you're going to leave here hopefully with the same blood in you <laughs> as you came in with. If you don't, something went wrong this morning. But when we, when we go to the Old Testament, that's not, that's not necessarily true with regards to the Word. Bloody sign has been removed. And notice how it's been given. New Testament believers receive a watery sign indicating Christ's fulfillment. His blood has been shed once for all. Now it has changed to a sign of purification and the washing away of sins because there's no need for bloodshed. It's already been taken away in Christ. Now, where do we get this connection between circumcision and baptism? Well, you can look at Romans 6. It's a great place to do it. But we're going to look at Colossians 2 before we go. Colossians 2, 11 through 12 says this. In him, Christ, you were also circumcised. In Christ, you were circumcised. As Paul is speaking to the church at Colossae, are they Jews? No. What's the problem in Colossae? It's the problem in all other places that we see in the New Testament. The major roiling debate in the New Testament, Paul spills a lot of inks and loses a lot of hair over this particular issue trying to teach the church it. Do you have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? Do you have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? What are they always fighting over? Dietary laws, circumcision, Meat sacrifice to idols. Can you touch that? Do that? Keep that feast? Be in the temple? What, you know, or can we really accept these Gentiles when they don't keep all the Old Testament laws? That's the major dilemma that's going on in the New Testament. Paul says to them, listen, Gentiles, breathe a little easier. You don't have to be circumcised because you are circumcised in Christ. In the putting off of the sinful nature... Sound familiar? Removal of flesh, sinful nature. He's connecting it spiritually. Not with a circumcision made by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, the one he's fulfilled in, in the cross. Then notice how he parallels it. Having been buried with him in baptism. How are you circumcised? How are you circumcised? Through baptism. That's the grammar of the passage. In Christ, you've been circumcised through the putting off. How did that happen? By being baptized. Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him 
from the dead. Paul is directly connecting, in Colossians chapter 2, the relationship between the covenant promises given to Abraham and the sign of circumcision with the promises of the new covenant given and fulfilled in Christ applied through baptism. It's a direct link for the Apostle Paul. Now, the clock is my enemy. All right, so notice below, because I'm not going to get a chance to get of all this. I want to just note the conclusion, and then I'm going to encourage you to read the objections. I think there should be a number of them in your head, so I'm trying to anticipate some of them. First objection, all over the New Testament we read, repent and be baptized. Isn't it clear that God has changed the administration of the covenant? Namely, that faith and repentance are preconditions for receiving the sign. That's the normal argument. Read my proposed answer on that. Objection two, isn't the fact that we never see an infant baptized reason enough not to do it? I would argue, actually, that's a great argument for continuing to do it. It's the exact opposite of how you think. And, and the reason briefly about that is the fact that for you know, thousands of years, the Jews did this and understood their children to be in the covenant and always received the sign of the covenant. And the fact that we have no mention that that was ever changed and no one ever objected. Did the Jews object to other things? Uh, yeah, like all the time. Dietary laws, Jerusalem council, like they're all up in arms about it. Can you imagine you and say, hey, your children have always been a part of the covenant. You've always, they've always received the sign. Now they're no longer in the covenant and don't give them the sign. Someone might have raised their hand. That was a huge deal. So actually, though, an argument from silence, I think it's a deafening silence with regards to the point. And the final objection, but isn't the absence of any specific command to baptize infants a strong argument against the practice of infant baptism? And I, too, argue that that is not the case, which you've come to probably expect that from me at this point. Now, let me just look at the conclusion so you can see the hermeneutic, and then we'll close. Conclusion, the sign of the covenant changes from circumcision to baptism. Romans 6, Colossians 2, Matthew 28, many others. But there is no clear command in the scripture that the administration of the covenant sign changes. How it was administered. There's no clear indication that it was the same. In fact, I'd argue the household baptisms are actually an example probably of that. Therefore, we change the sign from circumcision to baptism, but continue administering the sign as God commands until he tells us otherwise. Continuity until he tells us to stop doing it the way he's told us to do it or makes it clear that it needs to be changed. And I think in those objections below, I try, I try to give you a persuasive answer regarding it. You are a long-suffering and kind people. Um, that was a tremendous, that was like fire hosing you like big time. Like big time. So all those questions that are roiling around in your mind right now, um, inscribe them on something. Write, write them down. Um, contact the church office um, and, and let us know some of your questions. I'd love if we have enough people who are interested to do a different session. Probably wouldn't be on a Sunday morning because of our schedule. But um, to be able to hit some of the Q&A stuff with regards to this, because now there's a million other questions for us to talk about, all right? Let me pray and we'll go. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and uh, for answering, I trust, um, you, the prayer we prayed at the very beginning. Uh, Lord, continue to lead us into the way of truth as we um, enter into the worship of your people here in the next hour. We ask you, Lord, as you have come here to teach us from your word, that you would do so again there and that you would unite your heart to us as we are lifted up as sons and daughters of Abraham and seize upon the promises fulfilled in Christ. Come and assure our hearts once again of your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, friends.